Our passage this morning is Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 through 49. Daniel 2. Starting in verse 24. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we'll tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. 
And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Have any of you ever read the children's novel, Bridge to Terabithia? It was on our reading list when I was in sixth grade. It's a wonderful book. Um, uh, a lonely, sort of troubled boy named Jesse, uh, he meets a new friend at school who herself is lonely because she's new to the school, and her name's Leslie. Um, Jesse really struggles because, you know, he loves art and he loves books and he loves to run and things like that but his family for whatever reason just doesn't really seem to appreciate him he really doesn't feel like he has a a place where he belongs at school he struggles to make friends and Leslie is really uh, outgoing she's kind of tomboyish she loves actually all the same things that Jesse does but she too is just struggling to make friends struggling to fit in uh And so the two of them, they become really good friends. And in the woods, they create an imaginary kingdom for themselves called Terabithia. Uh, It's a beautiful place. It's out in the woods, and it's accessible to nobody else. You have to know the secret. You have to know that there's a rope swing you can swing across the creek. And so they go to this place, this kingdom that they've created, where they can escape, where they can be safe, where they can be friends, and enjoy the things that they enjoy together as friends, and care for each other. But the troubles at school remain, the troubles at home remain, and in the end, even this kingdom that they make, it's not able to save them from everything because sort of two-thirds of the way through the book, maybe. Leslie runs off to Terabithia alone, if I remember correctly, after an argument with Jesse. And the, the rope swing breaks. She falls into the creek, 
and drowns. Just like any human kingdom, it fails. It's not going to last. And all of us are seeking a place to be safe, to be cared for. And in human effort, we seek to build a kingdom for ourselves. Or we seek to join ourselves to another kingdom. And that's, that's where Nebuchadnezzar was. He had built for himself this amazing kingdom. One of the first, if not the first, really, truly great empire of the ancient Near East. Uh, he had riches that you couldn't imagine. He had conquered so many peoples, taken them captives. And yet he was a marked man. When you have that kind of power, of course, somebody's coming after you. And he knew it. So he had this dream. And he didn't know what it meant. And we've talked about this at length in previous sermons, but he needed to know what that dream meant. He was terrified of it. It's not even entirely clear that he could remember the dream, so he was doubly terrified. He was a scared man. I think that deep in his heart, he knew that his kingdom couldn't last. But God was telling him something. And God was telling Nebuchadnezzar something, but he was going to tell it to him through his own chosen people, through the voice of Daniel, a man whom God had shown what this dream meant. And what God shows Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel is that, yeah, you're a great king, you're a mighty king, And we're not going to take anything away from that fact, but your day will come and your kingdom won't last forever. But there is a kingdom that's coming. There is a kingdom that's coming that will be eternal. And that's what Daniel, by God's wisdom, tells Nebuchadnezzar all about here in this second half of Daniel chapter 2. God is showing Nebuchadnezzar and the rest of the world that he is establishing a kingdom that triumphs over all earthly kingdoms. But he reveals it so that God's people can see this kingdom and receive it and be made citizens of this kingdom. We'll see that God blesses his people through the triumph of this kingdom. And so first we look at how God's kingdom triumphs over the kingdoms of the earth. And so there's a lot of 
speculation as to the particular identities of the kings and kingdoms represented in this image of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay. Now, the text itself just tells us the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it just says so. And probably uh, it's meant to be understood that the whole Neo-Babylonian empire is represented in this head of gold. It's what Daniel says in verse 38, that you, O king, are the head of gold. But after that point, opinions diverge. Uh, and I favor the more traditional view that the silver chest and arms refer to the Medo-Persian Empire, that the bronze middle and thighs refer to the Greek Empire, and the legs and feet of iron and clay represent the Roman Empire. But that kind of speculation over exactly what kings and kingdoms are represented in this picture isn't really the main point of this passage either. For the climax of the dream is not in the identities of these parts of this image. For the climax of the dream is in this stone. It's cut by no human hand and it comes down and it smashes all of those other parts of the image and reduces them to nothing. And so... We want to look at this picture and make two main observations about these kingdoms from God's perspective, which first is that the kingdoms of this world are united in opposition to God's kingdom. And second, that the kingdoms of this world are in a state of decline. And so first, the kingdoms of the world are united in God's eyes against them. You see, these four kingdoms comprising this image are still portrayed as a single image. And, you know, even if we assume that the four kingdoms are Babylonia, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, history shows that each successive kingdom in some way is absorbing the kingdom that precedes it. And so we don't see four images arraying themselves uh, against the God of heaven. But we see one single image, the kingdoms of this world, united together as one. And when the stone cut by no human hand comes, all it needs to do is strike at the feet of the iron and clay, and the whole edifice comes tumbling down the whole thing will be erased from memory. We have a tendency to sort of consider the merits of different kingdoms. You can read in magazines or on websites, you know, different people ranking countries of this world. This one's the most economically free. This one has the best human rights. This one has the most religious freedom and so on. But what we see here is we see these many different kingdoms with their different cultures, their different histories, united into one. We see that in God's sight, all the nations, in a human way, are united in opposition to him. And all have a tendency to go against his will. And all will be wiped out at the coming of his kingdom. 
And second, we look at this state of decline. For Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is represented by a head of gold, the most precious metal at its time. But from there on down, future kingdoms are depicted by less and less precious metals until the fourth kingdom is simply iron mixed with clay. Not, not even a precious metal and not even entirely metal at that. And some commentators also point to an apparent decrease in the unity of these kingdoms. You've got a single head made of gold, but then a chest and arms separate parts made of silver, belly and thighs separate parts again made of bronze, until the fi- at the last we've got legs and feet and toes, not only different parts, but even made up of a composite of materials at that. And this view of seeing decreasing unity is also uh, informed by this reference in verse 43 to the disunity among the last kingdom. And, you know, the exact nature of this decline is not certain, but the portrayal of decline should be sounding alarm bells if you're paying attention, for the world doesn't ordinarily think of itself as being in decline. You know, we as human beings, as, as the human race, we hope for a better future than we have. Every, uh, every nation is promising for its people an ascent from glory to glory to glory. We expect things to get better. We expect new developments to lead to greater glory for humanity rather than to decline. And so, even just look at that fourth kingdom. Suppose that it is the Roman Empire and we, we wonder at their feats of engineering. We look at the aqueducts, the highways, the ability to conquer and maintain an empire from the Atlantic to the Near East, the military discipline. So by human standards, that Roman Empire is the pinnacle of human achievement of its time. And to say nothing of what we have here thousands of years later, we have airplanes, we have iPhones, we can transfer money at the push of a button, we can build the tallest building the world's ever seen. We've even walked on the moon. And it's true. There are ways that the world has become a better place, even in my own lifetime. For by God's grace, not everything is getting worse always. But viewed as a whole, this vision shows us human kingdoms as God sees them. That there is a decline. That there is a tendency toward ruin because of the sinful nature of humanity. And so if you are looking for a bright future of human achievement. It's not a very hopeful picture at all. But if you're looking for a different kingdom entirely, you have every reason to hope. For God is establishing a kingdom that will destroy the kingdom of this world. So as we look at this passage, this depiction of this stone cut by no human hand, we make four observations about some characteristics that it's created by God and God alone. That it's all victorious. 
that it's universal and it's eternal. So first, this eternal kingdom is created by God. For Daniel says that the stone is cut by no human hand. It's God's kingdom is not a kingdom that's created or sustained by any human being. He himself created it. This is the kingdom that we see inaugurated in Christ in his atoning work and that, that God is working to bring to its fulfillment when Christ comes again. And it's all God's work, not made by human hands. The human effort will never bring about the kingdom of God. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar's vision doesn't give the impression that there will be some other worldly kingdom that joins in and participates in this process of creating the kingdom of God and establishing it. It's God's work through and through. This eternal eternal kingdom is all victorious. This stone, it doesn't only smash into pieces the kingdom of iron and clay, but it brings the entire edifice down with it. It conquers all other kingdoms, every other rival. Even Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, all the way at the very top, made of gold, will be passed, will pass away when this stone rolls in. And this is, this Nebuchadnezzar is no slouch. Look at what Daniel says about him in verses 37 through 38. He is the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making him rule over all. It's heady stuff. Nebuchadnezzar is nobody to trifle with. Even God through the lips of Daniel ascribes greatness to him. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom will be ground to dust by the kingdom of God. And Daniel's message of this destruction applies to all other kingdoms of the earth too. And it's so fascinating to me the way that he echoes Psalm 1 where he says that the kingdoms became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Echoing Psalm 1 where the, the way of the wicked or the wicked person is described as being like chaff that the wind drives away. Never to be seen again. There's further allusion to Psalm, Psalm 2 in verse 45 where it's or several places too actually where it says that the stone breaks in pieces other parts of, this, of the statue just as the kingdom of the sun in Psalm 2 breaks in pieces the kingdoms like a potter's vessel. So the kingdom of God brings about judgment for all the nations, for all who oppose him. There's no question that he will be victorious over all who would oppose him. This kingdom of God is universal, for it says here that the stone becomes a great mountain and it fills the whole earth. This kingdom will be all-encompassing. 
And there will be no rivals to his throne. And all people everywhere will be united under its rule. And yet, at the same time as it's universal, it does take it time in growing to its universal proportions. It begins as a stone, but becomes a great mountain. And it fills the whole earth. So the universality of God's kingdom is here. And finally, it's eternal. You know, earthly kingdoms come and go. Daniel himself will live to see the fall of the Neo-Babylonian Empire at the hands of the Medo-Persian Empire. Every kingdom represented in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is dispatched by its successor. But Christ's kingdom endures forever. No other kingdom takes down this kingdom. This kingdom is united, unlike the fourth kingdom. It will never tear itself apart from within. So the kingdom that God is establishing is eternal. And this is the kingdom that we see in Christ. As He came to proclaim and to establish the kingdom of God on earth. It's created by God. Jesus being born during the time of the Roman Empire, being that stone that came and struck the legs of feet and feet of iron and clay. What does Jesus say at the beginning of his ministry? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We see the many ways, there are so many ways that we can look at Christ and see how he brought the kingdom of God into the world apart from human activity. He was born without natural conception. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon him to empower his ministry at his baptism. When Jesus taught, the people said of him that he had an authority from God that they had never heard before. He was not like their human teachers. We could cite so many more examples, but the supreme work of this kingdom's creation happened on the cross. Christ made a sacrifice that no human being could make. He was perfect. He was God. As Paul writes, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Only someone who was truly God would be able to fulfill this atoning work and establish his kingdom on earth. And in so doing, he creates for himself something new, a kingdom comprised not of just one nation of people, but many nations of people. The kingdom is nothing without citizens. And so Jesus died to pay the penalty for his people's sins. And when he did so, he rescued for himself a people to be citizens of his heavenly kingdom. And so when you trust Jesus, he makes you a citizen of this kingdom. But Christ isn't satisfied with a victory over the kingdoms of the earth. For he conquered death itself. 
As it says in Hebrews 2.14, that through death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death. So if it weren't enough for him to take down every kingdom, he takes down death too. He takes down our adversary, the devil. So Paul can call out mockingly in 1 Corinthians, Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? So Christ's kingdom has victory over everyone and everything that would dare oppose Him. Christ's kingdom is universal. And we see this as the Gospel is proclaimed to the nations. Paul writes in Christ that there is neither Jew nor Greek. The book of Revelation tells us that the kings of the nations will come and bring their glory to the heavenly city, the capital of God's kingdom on earth. That the leaves of the tree of life will be for the healing of the nations. God is creating something new, a new people out of every nation that there is. And His kingdom will fill the earth. The whole earth will be His and this heavenly city will be the capital. Even to this, even at this day, waiting for Jesus to return, you and I have brothers and sisters everywhere, all over the earth, worshiping the true God. And yet, as we said, this kingdom does take its time to grow to its universal proportions. And Jesus Himself spoke about this in the parables. For example, Jesus compares His kingdom to a mustard seed that begins as a tiny seed, but in time grows to a surprisingly large tree. One that the birds are able to come and nest in. So Jesus' kingdom has humble beginnings, but it grows and now is growing to fill the whole earth. And Christ's kingdom is eternal. It endures forever. He is able to bring to completion all that He has begun in His work, in His earthly life and ministry, and by His death and resurrection. So there will come a day when we will look forward to an eternity. We look forward to it now, of course. But when we will see with our own eyes this kingdom, where we know that every day, after day, after day, we will be in that kingdom forever. And so we see how God's kingdom triumphs over the kingdoms of this world. It's a kingdom created by God that triumphs over all contenders, that's universal, that's eternal. And this kingdom comes as God reveals the kingdom to His people so that they are able to receive it and be citizens of it. For this report and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is prefaced by Daniel giving commentary on the source of its interpretation. You know, Arioch brings Daniel in and tells the king, oh, Daniel, this guy Daniel, he has the dream and the interpretation. But Daniel quickly turns and says, nobody, not even himself, can obtain this knowledge on their own. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
And this God reveals mysteries according to his own good purpose, not because there's any wisdom or any other good thing found in the person to whom he reveals it. And God's purpose is that he wants his mysteries to be made known. Daniel says it in verse 30 that he has given Daniel the dream and the interpretation so that it may be made known to the king. So Daniel is not given the interpretation so he can keep it a secret for himself. God gives this knowledge to Daniel so that he shares it. And not just with Nebuchadnezzar, for now this knowledge has been shared with all of God's people who read his word, people like you and me. And so this proclamation, this message of the kingdom is a work that the church carries out in the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that the Acts, in the Acts of the Apostles that it says that both Philip and Paul, they proclaimed the name of the Lord Jesus and what? The kingdom of God. And yet this work remains God's work because the church carries it out in the power of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus promised this this power at the beginning of Acts, this power from God that enables the apostles to carry out the work of proclaiming the gospel. Without that power, human efforts would be worthless. And in fact, human effort, as we see in Colossians 2, tends to run in opposition to the kingdom of God. As Paul attributes to false teachers Human precepts and teachings. Even human precepts and teachings that have an appearance of wisdom. Paul attributes them to falsehood when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. And so the Holy Spirit is at work today. The Holy Spirit is at work primarily through the proclamation of God's word in Scripture For the apostles preached the message of Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection in the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, we impart this teaching in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And this message was recorded by God's inspiration in the Scriptures we now have. And so the Holy Spirit is at work to build the kingdom of God wherever God's word is read and taught and proclaimed. As it says in the beginning of Hebrews, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus is God's final word for this revelation until he comes again. And if you have faith in the Jesus whom God reveals, you are a citizen of this heavenly kingdom. This kingdom that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar about. A citizen of God's all-victorious, universal, eternal kingdom. And Jesus is your king. Jesus is the one who conquered death for you. Who protects you who provides for all your needs, who guides you to walk worthily as a citizen of his heavenly kingdom. And part of that walking worthily is to bring the message to others. God didn't give Daniel understanding to keep it to himself. And God doesn't give you knowledge of his scriptures by his Holy Spirit to keep it to yourself either. 
For God wants his mysteries to be made known to others. Paul speaks of himself as an ambassador in chains. He describes himself and Timothy as being entrusted with God's ministry of reconciliation. Jesus himself teaches his disciples to go and make more disciples. So if you are a citizen of this heavenly kingdom, you can't help but bring this knowledge to others. It's a knowledge that wants to get out, that wants to be proclaimed because God wants it to be proclaimed and to be made known. And so we've seen how God's kingdom is different from the kingdoms of the world. And how God calls upon the citizens of His heavenly kingdom to proclaim His kingdom. But then we come to this little epilogue. Daniel is lifted up before the king. The key to interpreting the book of Daniel is to see that God shows Daniel in visions the overall, the cosmic proportions of this conflict of which Daniel just plays a small part. And so God is showing Daniel the things that you have seen in your own life are just a part of the overall picture. But they're given to Daniel to experience and us to experience to see that God is indeed walking with us and working out His cosmic purposes even on the scale of one person or this group of friends. So I believe that's what's happening here, that God is saying that what Daniel experiences as he is lifted up before the king, as he is promoted within the kingdom, is a part of what God's people anticipate at that final victory. It shows what God has in store for the citizens of His eternal kingdom. And this is the giveaway. Nebuchadnezzar, a mighty king of Babylon, bows down before a kidnapped, exiled Jew from Israel to give glory to the true God. In a small, temporary way, Nebuchadnezzar is acting out the dream that he saw. Giving glory and honor to to the one whose kingdom will crush his own. This is only a foretaste. It's only a little glimpse. We know that Nebuchadnezzar is going to return, recover from this temporary bout of humility, and that he'll exalt himself again. But it offers up a, a tantalizing glimpse of what God will do for his people. This great reversal that God will work simply because he loves us. So it will be when Christ comes to return and complete the work that he began on the cross. For he will bring his kingdom in its absolute fullness. When he does, he'll glorify himself. He'll defeat all his enemies for good. And he will glorify himself in giving you a position as his vice regent over the earth. And He'll provide you with everything that you need for a life fully satisfied in Him. In this kingdom, you'll be cared for. You'll have 
fellowship with one another. You'll be safe. And above all, you'll worship him. Let's pray.